BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Uh, I guess... uh job security for both constitutional law professors and journalists right now yeah it's great but i'd love i'd love a little less job security hey everyone from kqed public radio this is political breakdown i'm marisa lagos and i'm scott schaefer today on the breakdown another day in court for former president donald trump this time the supreme court lawyers for the former president and the state of Colorado appeared this morning to debate whether or not Trump can be taken off the Colorado presidential ballot. That's right. This is after the state's high court decided that he violated Section 3 of the 14th Amendment by participating in an insurrection on January 6, 2021. Though the justices in Washington didn't really debate that little insurrection bit. Joining us to talk about those arguments and some of the other legal questions facing the former president, Justin Levitt. He's a constitutional law professor at Loyola Law School and previously worked as senior policy advisor for democracy and voting rights at the Biden White House. Justin Levitt, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Bill. So let's get into today's hearing. Uh, started off bright and early for us on the West Coast here. Um, can you just kind of lay out the broad facts? We can get into details in a minute. But what does Colorado believe that Section 3 of this 14th Amendment, why, like why it disqualifies Trump? So Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, obviously passed in the wake of the Civil War, was designed to prevent people who had engaged in insurrection or rebellion from holding political office. It was aimed at state office and local office and federal office, and maybe, and one of the questions for the court this morning, the president. Um, Colorado found, the Supreme Court of Colorado found, that uh, the president had engaged in insurrection through conduct up to and including January 6th after the 2020 elections, um, and that therefore they had not only a right but an obligation to protect their voters from voting for someone who is ineligible to hold the office uh, because he was disqualified. And to the Colorado Supreme Court, this was a disqualification no different from the notion that you have to be 35 or that you have to be a natural-born citizen or have lived in the country or have served fewer than two terms. Um, Pretty much every part of what I just said was disputed <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, by the former president and his attorneys. And uh, the argument at the court today was pretty wide ranging, although you're right, they spent very little time discussing the merits of was there an insurrection or wasn't there an insurrection or did Trump do it or didn't he do it? And I think to most of us, that's not a surprise. Yeah. And I Why? Think, yeah. Uh, they, the Supreme Court justices, and I think all nine of them don't want to come anywhere near making a decision about whether there was or wasn't an insurrection. That's despite uh, several amicus briefs urging them to do exactly that, uh, particularly to do it early 
well, relatively early in the political cycle before voters cast their ballots or before more voters cast their ballots. Um, but they were much more interested in the question of who decides when there's been an insurrection or not and whether this was the sort of thing that the state can have any say in at all. Um, and also whether this provision disqualifying people who've engaged in an insurrection applies to the president. Well, one of the things that did come up, as you suggested, is this notion that why should Colorado get to decide for all of the country whether or not somebody, or any state for that matter, whether somebody should be on a presidential ballot? Did that to you seem like the most difficult uh, hurdle that Colorado had to get over in the minds of the justices? It's certainly in the background. Now, Colorado would say they're not deciding for all of the country. They're deciding for Colorado. And as they pointed out, other states, there's there's a variety of states with different ballot access laws about who gets to be on a state-run primary ballot or a state general election ballot. Um, Colorado doesn't allow people born in another country, not people who aren't natural-born citizens on the ballot, but some states do, even if they can't hold office if they win. And Colorado's point was, we're just telling our own citizens who's eligible. We're just telling our own electors you know, what the options are. Uh, and so we're not trying to decide for the country. Nevertheless, it was very clear that the justices, and again, if not nine, awful close to that, were at least disturbed by the notion that maybe not one state, but that several states with different rules of evidence or different approaches or different decision makers could come to inconsistent decisions about a, the eligibility, the qualification of someone running for national office. Yeah. I mean, can I ask like what I know, I know you are not a mind reader, but do you think that one of the reasons that the court stayed so far away from the insurrection question is they don't want to be the arbiters of that? Like and and if so, like, would it have made a difference then if, you know, say Trump had been convicted of that, which we should say he's not actually charged with in any of these cases, like insurrection itself. But can you just talk a little bit about that? Like, it, it did seem like even the most liberal justices really did not want to touch that hot potato. That's that's certainly right. Um, and again, I think no surprise. I think to most observers, uh, they thought that the, the court would find a way to resolve this case without getting into the merits of did he do it or didn't he do it? Um, the the notion of being charged is an interesting one because that did kind of sort of show up today, but only in a weird way. Um, one of President Trump's claims is that Congress is the real decision maker here and Congress has to act in some way before somebody can be disqualified on the basis of an insurrection. And it's not necessarily that Congress has to find X person committed an insurrection but the Congress has to set up a standard or a particular route. And they pointed out Congress had done that uh, after the Civil War in the 1870s. There were a couple of different ways that Congress said, OK, here's how we're going to make sure that people who, had in, who were on the Confederacy side in the Civil War didn't get local office again or didn't get state or federal office again. Um, many of those paths got retracted, got repealed in the years following. There's one that didn't. And that's a criminal conviction for insurrection. And President Trump claims that that's the lone path remaining, that he would have to be convicted in order to be disqualified based on insurrection. That's fairly ahistorical. Doesn't so, it also like fly in 
opposition to what he's argued in another case, which is like that he has to be convicted in the Senate of impeachment before he can be convicted of anything legal. Like, it feels like there's actually cross purposes here in some of the legal arguments he's making. There were and are. And that's uh, in some ways an oddity of legal argument. But you saw his attorney at the Supreme Court today sort of scramble to try and reconcile all of these competing claims. It's also inconsistent with the notion that uh, in another other case, he's claiming that he can't ever be prosecuted, that no former president can be prosecuted for anything. And so um, there are lots of different legal claims flying around and they're not all perfectly consistent with each other. I will say that in and of itself isn't crazy. His attorney is offering different theories to the Supreme Court and saying, if you don't like one, here's another. And if you don't like that one, here's another. And if you don't like that one, I still got other ones for you. And the Supreme Court doesn't have to buy them all in order to buy one of them. And that sort of argument structure happens in legal argument all the time. One of the things that came up where they were debating the language, of course, of Section 3, and there were questions about whether, since the office of the president isn't explicitly mentioned, whether or not it applies to him. But there was also the question uh, of the phrase, not allowed to hold any office. And one of the justices said, look, it doesn't say anything about running for office. It's about holding the office, suggesting that, yeah, you can run and then later be disqualified, which, of course, brings up its whole, a whole other kind of chaos that would ensue. But that that is one of the points they made, right? It does. And I think the direction that the Supreme Court ultimately takes is going to depend a lot on how much they care about exactly that other kind of chaos, right? There is both a narrow legal question of what's legally right, but also you could hear weighing on the justices' minds what's a system that makes sense. And also, I know in the background, is what does this mean for society? Some of the claims that President Trump is making, including the notion that this is a prohibition on holding office and that we got to see whether he's elected first and then we make the call, um, have some, I would say, compelling legal aspects to them, but they tend to punt a decision on whether he's eligible to be elected president until January 6th, at the very least, and there are real dangers in that. Right, um, which is exactly- <laughs> it's kind of triggering, actually, that date. Yes. Well, it is what Colorado is <laughs> saying. Reason. We should get ahead of this for the sake of our voters so they're not disenfranchised if later, you know, it gets anyway. All right. We need to sh- take a short break. When we come back, we will continue our conversation with Loyola Law School constitutional law professor Justin Levitt. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. 
visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Our guest today is Justin Levitt. He's a constitutional law professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles and a former advisor for democracy and voting rights at the Biden White House. And we are talking about this morning's Supreme Court arguments about whether former President Donald Trump should or should not be on the Colorado ballot. And, you know, before the break, Professor, we were talking about sort of the things the court considers. And I just like want to get your take on this because some of the considerations it seems like are beyond the, the the questions of law. So like the court talked a lot about what would happen in other states if this were to go forward and Colorado could boot Trump off the ballot, sort of raising this, you know, a question of whether then to get back at Democrats, Republicans might try to strip. I mean, probably Biden off the ballot, although they never mentioned him. I I guess it's like a little confusing to the public because, you know, we're told that they're supposed to be calling balls and strikes, but it seems like they're constantly looking around and taking some temperature. Like, and and I mean, I I think you can argue on both sides if that's good or bad, but like, what's your sense of that in a case like this? Well, in a case like this, they're taking all the temperature they can possibly find. They're getting as many weather readings as (laughs) it's possible to get um, because they know full well that there are several things at stake here. One is the construction of the specific constitutional text. Another is the design of the system, right? The framers of the 14th Amendment in 1868 designed this process to work in a particular way. And they're trying to see whether the stepping way back, whether that makes any sense. And third, they're trying to figure out whether the end product is going to be workable or whether they're essentially setting up a road that runs straight into a brick wall. Mm -hmm. And all three of those things are working at the same time. I think for, you didn't hear it mentioned today, but they are very conscious of the tinderbox that is the American political attitude at the moment and trying to figure out how best to negotiate that. And and Professor, you know, we don't get to see the Supreme Court justices at work. You know, they don't allow cameras in the courtroom. If you happen to have a ticket to get in, you get to see them. Um, We did have the audio today. uh, And I'm just wondering if you thought that the attention that this particular case got, along with the audio, there were many stations carrying it live on radio and television. Do you think that that alters their behavior? Because to me, it seemed, and again, I don't get to hear this all the time, but they seemed very respectful of each other. And even the, uh, the attorneys who went, you know, when they would give their case at the beginning, they used to always get interrupted, like like maybe after the first sentence or two. And it seemed much more, I don't know, just collegial and a little more respectful. I think, I don't think that the attention has changed their behavior much. I think in part, some of the uh, pandemic procedures have changed their behavior. The way that argument is structured now is just different mm. in part because uh, it's, it's harder to get a word in edgewise when you're having argument over Zoom. And I think they all learned a little bit how to leave a little bit more space in the conduct. Um, The advocates were very professional. I think the justices mirrored that, although the conversation got, I I won't say rude, but slightly testier at times. Uh, Several of the justices were were asking the advocates to answer the question in in crisp fashion, even if they weren't, uh, you know, yelling. I think what you saw is mostly the norm and there were interruptions, but it's, it's very rarely the case that the justices are yelling at the advocates or at each other. Um, they're making their points in pointed ways. And there was no shortage of that here today, 
but they also know that um there's something to the respect for the institution that comes from the way they comport themselves. Hmm. And so I think this is the, the, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways that they're being paid closer attention to, not just because of Donald Trump. Right. For sure. A lot of ethical issues. Yeah. And then I was so interested because I think that, you know, I think that there's been a sense going into this that, you know, maybe especially the conservative justice would want to side with Trump, but there really were some tough questions from justice, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson from justice, Elena Kagan, you know, both Democratic appointees, um, including about this part that I just like find so head scratching as a non-lawyer, which is like, why would the president not be considered an officer? And, you know, this whole thing, I don't know how deep you want to go into the details, but like, what did you make of how much in particular Justice Jackson focused on that and and sort of what that tells us? Well, I think it's a pretty good indication of the way that the case is likely to come out. I think I would not be surprised if the decision were unanimous um that that what was done here was not proper i'd be very surprised if the rationale were unanimous i think you're going to see an opinion where nine justices say what colorado did wasn't okay but you might have nine different opinions about why uh that each justice seemed to find something that spoke to them in particular about the reason that things didn't go particularly right yeah um i i think that there was a lot of attention paid to trying to make sense of constitutional provisions like that portion you mentioned where the president is not mentioned specifically although other offices are mentioned specifically in this section three of the 14th amendment and what it means particularly for other constitutional provisions you know the justices are never just deciding the case in front of them they're also always thinking about the ramifications of what they decide here for other parts of the Constitution. We want to move on to some of the other cases and, uh, you know, allegations and charges that have been brought by the former president. But I want to ask you, in some ways, do you think this was kind of just a warm-up act? Because there did seem to be a fair consensus. Maybe the reasoning will come out a little different depending on the justice. Whereas the question of presidential immunity in some ways looms much larger. Uh, The president is going to have to go to the court uh, by, uh, I think, Sunday the 11th, um, based on the appeals court ruling that he does not have uh, presidential immunity immunity from criminal prosecution. So I'm wondering if you think they, in some sense, maybe wanted to kind of clear the decks on this because this other issue is going to be much more monumental. I think there are a lot of reasons, actually, they wanted to clear the decks on this, and not the least of which, a lot of people have been focusing on this case because they believed that the court was going to decide, did he do it or didn't he do it, right? They're going to give a verdict on whether he is or whether he did or did not engage in insurrection. I firmly believe that the court is not inclined to make that decision. And I worry a little bit that all of the attention on this case will have people misinterpreting the result. That is, if the court does in fact rule that Colorado was incorrect, that's not going to be, it's extremely unlikely, that it will be a validation of the notion that President Trump did not engage in insurrection, right? They're not going to say he's free and clear. Mm. They're going to say something went wrong with the procedure or Colorado shouldn't be making these decisions or these decisions are for somebody else. I worry a little bit that the public is getting used to leaving a little bit of their own responsibility to make ballot choices to institutional decision makers, that they're sort of putting off a little bit of what we all carry with us to, to keep the republic on institutions like the Supreme Court, asking the Supreme Court essentially to decide things for us that they might not be inclined to decide. Mm. And 
this is very much of a piece with all of the litigation after 2020. I firmly believe that voters are going to decide who is elected president and not courts. Now, but this as you speaks suggest, to, yeah, I mean, it speaks to like, I think in some ways we've seen the former president really take advantage of a lot of norms, including this idea that you couldn't get, um, you know, that you wouldn't charge a sitting president. I, I think down to these cases where, you know, he's arguing that this is all a political witch hunt. And because he is on the ballot again, he has more strength in that case. I, I don't think you're arguing this, but let me just give you a chance. I don't think you're saying that these prosecutors shouldn't be looking at potential crimes that he committed, right? Oh, no, this is quite the opposite. I think I think that the criminal cases are actually incredibly important. This is making your point earlier. I think that the the cases about whether he's on the ballot or not are in in some ways not answering the question that the voters will want to have, which is, should he be our chief executive? I think that the criminal cases are much more directly aimed at that, both state and federal criminal cases of serious criminal conduct or misconduct of uh dealing with classified information actually of of some of the essential uh, responsibilities that we put on the president right negotiating with foreign governments of dealing with classified information of making sure that we have a peaceful election process and commitment to the peaceful transfer of power um, those are sort of core issues to what we expect out of a president and i think there are going to be uh, lots of issues that the courts will resolve over the coming months that speak directly to that including the criminal cases and his claims of immunity. How quickly do you think the court is going to decide on this question of immunity uh, or either, and perhaps not take it up, you know, just allow the 3-0 ruling to stand and then that trial uh, can move forward? Uh, you know, that's, obviously the president's team wants to delay this as long as possible. So what, what, what chances does he have for that, do you think? I think I would be quite surprised if the court took and held the question at all. I'd be a little surprised if they took it. I think this one is easy. Uh, right. Does the president have absolute immunity from criminal process, from federal criminal prosecution at that um, for acts that were committed that were not in his presidential capacity? The appellate court in D.C. actually didn't focus on this, but he's a candidate. He's a private citizen when he's doing the acts that he's alleged of having done in uh, at least the D.C. case. Um, and the documents, and, both D.C. And, cases. The documents case, right, he's a private citizen by the time he's retaining and refusing to hand over and yeah. return the documents down in Florida. And so uh, I think there's no question that the D.C. appellate court got to the right answer. I think the Supreme Court's probably going to want to let them have the final answer on that rather than slow things down further. So I'd be a little bit surprised if if there were any further delay other than we're not taking this case. Well, let's talk about some of those other cases. We were just talking about this immunity case, but, um, you know, there's the Georgia case where we had uh, a lot of allegations that have really nothing to do with the, the substance of the case, but are really about the prosecutor and whether she's had an inappropriate relationship with the outside counsel she brought in. Um, how do you see that in this moment? I, again, I think a lot of, you know, Things like that are often used in a political context to try to sort of dirty up these cases, but it doesn't feel like it goes to the heart of the actual criminal case against the former president. It doesn't go to the heart of the criminal case at all. Um, that said, it's not a great look for a prosecutor uh, to have questionable relationships with the person who's ultimately in charge of bringing the prosecution. And um, getting a lot of taxpayer money for it. Yeah. And so uh, some real question about prosecutorial ethics. As you say, 
as something of a sideshow to the main case against the president and co-conspirators in Georgia. Um, I'll also say most of that evidence is public knowledge. So unlike most prosecutions, many of us watched the crime happen live, often publicly here. And so there's a little less question about um, how some of that prosecutorial sideshow may be impacting the case, if only because we kind of all saw what happened. It's really a legal argument about whether that amounts to a, a conspiracy to deprive the people of the United States of the fair election process. Who makes the call whether or not the prosecutor and that team needs to be removed from this case? It's a judge, I presume, but which one? And, and how long does he have or she have to make that decision? I think that's going to be up to uh, the judge overseeing the Georgia case directly. I doubt that the appellate courts are going to get involved in that decision. I doubt that they'll want to. Um, and I, I have my suspicions that uh, the, the sideshow will resolve to a bunch of noise that doesn't amount to much in the way of the prosecution itself. Um, it's kind of a shame that the noise exists at all because it's a distraction. Well, it kind of um, muddies the water, much too. I don't think it muddies the water on on the real issue. No, the which politics is, of it, though. Yeah, and that's the shame. And yeah. if, if voters can see through to the actual legal case, I think the waters are unfortunately a lot clearer. Well, speaking of politics, I think we cannot go this whole half hour without noting uh, another special counsel report <laughs> of the many we've seen in recent years. This one focusing on the current president, Joe Biden. So this was an investigation into whether he had illegally kept classified documents after leaving the Obama White House. Um, and the special prosecutor on that case is not recommending charges, but had a kind of scathing report, uh, essentially saying that they do believe that Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified materials, uh, but that they don't think they could prove his guilt uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, including for this reason, quote, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury, as he did during our interview with him, as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Ouch. I mean, Le <laughs> Professor Levin, it, it, the whole thing is written, I mean, not in the way like a brief would be written. It's it's very sort of narrative focused. It has a, takes a lot of liberties like that. I mean, what's your reaction? Clearly, the Trump campaign and his allies are going to use this uh, to continue what they see as, you know, a, an ongoing narrative about the president's age and sort of mental fitness. Um, are you at all surprised by that type of language? I'm a little surprised by that type of language in a prosecutorial report. You know, it, contrast to something like the Mueller report, which also declined to recommend specific charges, but was much more uh, matter of fact in its descriptions. Um, in fact, there the the scandal was its its repetition to the public by the attorney general in a way that sounded a whole lot more like the the report you just described, the special counsel's report today. Um, that's not normally how prosecutors go about explaining their findings. Um, that said, I think that it's not merely the presentation, the fact that the president would present as elderly and sympathetic, but there's something to the notion that there's uh, no question classified material was not handled properly in this case. And yet that seems to career prosecutors to be distinct from willfully interfering mm -hmm. with the classification process. And that's that's a distinction that makes a difference. Ordinarily, you'd think that the president's team would be high-fiving, you know, because he is getting cleared in a sense. They're not bringing charges. This has got to be, though, about like the worst possible way to be cleared 
in terms of handing your opponents a lot of ammunition I mean, in the process. It's really, I mean, it does go to the heart of what they're saying here is that they think that he has memory problems. Yeah. Well, and there were, there's, I think there's no question there were sloppy procedures. You don't find classified information without sloppy procedures. I'll say that's in my mind different than the notion of intending to break the law by withholding documents, even after you've been told, hey, please give them back. Um, and that, that strikes me as a meaningful difference with, as the voters come to the polls about who to trust in November. Um, I think that, frankly, even as much as the president's team may not be welcoming this report written in this way, I think it's a comparison they'd love to draw. But do you think they can use it then against uh, the the Jack Smith case, the, the Trump campaign or the Trump Trump's lawyers? Could they use this report to rebut anything that he is legally being charged with in his documents case? There's no question he'll make the attempt. Uh, the Trump campaign and Trump's lawyers, both and independently, both the campaign apparatus and the legal apparatus, have been very eager to litigate their cases in the court of public opinion rather than actually in the courts. And I think you'll see that again. Whether it's successful or not depends on how much attention we're paying to the stuff that really matters. Real quick, what are you going to be looking for in the coming days? Lots of activity, including, as you flagged, the Supreme Court's decision on whether it's going to hear about immunity or not, whether we're done, whether that returns to the D.C. courts with a trial schedule that is coming up before the the rest of the primaries in the general election, um, and then waiting for the court to issue its opinion on the hearing today. All right. That is going to do it. Justin Levitt of Loyola Law School. Thanks for uh, coming in today. Great to be with you. That'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Before we let you go, don't forget to check out our election guide for the March 5th primary. It's online at kqed.org slash voter guide. Our engineer today is Seal Muller. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you next time. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.